chapter 3, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. This is the seventh letter to the seven churches. This is the deathly hallows, if you will, of our study. And if you're just joining us here for the very first time, um, I guess you should know that really, as we've been looking across seven churches, it's been very much like looking at a color spectrum. And if you're only here for tonight's study, it would be only looking at the church with red tinted glasses. And so all you see is red, whereas the spectrum is much more multicolored and multifaceted. And so I want you just to understand if this is your first time with us, uh, I want to encourage you to look at Revelation 2 and all of Revelation 3 for all that. This is, this is our last study. We're excited to announce a new sermon series that will be starting on Sunday nights. It'll be in August and September, so stay tuned for more information about that. We're excited to look at that with you. Hope you got your Bibles ready. I don't. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3 again, and verse 14 is where we'll start. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here we have Jesus Christ, these words in red, a letter to the church in Laodicea. I'd like to throw this out to our roundtable discussion, um, as we have traditionally done. A background note, a historical note that stands out to you that would especially be helpful in understanding our text tonight about Laodicea. A lot of the cities that we've looked at uh, throughout the seven letters were very affluent, very rich, very prosperous places of uh, great commercial wealth, uh, but all of them pale in comparison to what the citizens of Laodicea were. Uh, Laodicea was the richest uh, in the whole area that they were at, one of the richest cities uh, in all the world at the time. Uh, scholars, I was looking, scholars have called it the Wall Street of Asia. Uh, it was a city for millionaires. It was a city 
full of affluent and, and very rich people financially. Uh, even Jesus recognizes their wealth. In verse 17 he says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So he's talking to the church, and many in the church were so rich that they needed absolutely nothing. They had everything taken care of. Uh, they were wealthy. They were financially prosperous to the point of needing nothing, Jesus says, at least in their minds. And so the problem there is when you have a society that thinks that they need nothing, one of those things that they think they don't need is God. They think that they are above that need. And so when you look at the city of Laodicea, and even the Christians in Laodicea, they were the definition of privilege. We hear that word tossed around a lot. But the Laodiceans were privileged people. They were privileged to the point of forgetting what was really important in life. They were privileged to the point that they were no longer caring about advancing the gospel, advancing the kingdom, advancing the cause of Christ. And so this privilege really took away from who they used to be, or at least from who they could be. And so you have this, this wealth that the Laodiceans had and that the church there had, and they weren't doing anything with that wealth to advance the kingdom and the cause of Christ. Uh, when it came to all of the hard work that it takes to be a Christian and to advance the kingdom, see, the Laodiceans, they felt like they were above it. All that persecution stuff, all of that uh, uh, putting your body on the line, being faithful until the point of death, ah, we'll leave that to Smyrna. Smyrna, they, they, they can bear that load. They can bear that cross. But we here at Laodicea are above such grunt work. And so that's, what, that's one thing that we can see from the, the city of Laodicea, even the church in Laodicea. Uh, that's why Jesus reminds them, hey, you, you think you're rich, but you're actually wretched. You're blind, you're poor in the things we're going to be talking about in a minute. But the first thing we can see about the background of Laodicea is that they were extremely wealthy when it came to finances and extremely destitute when it came to spirituality. Oh, one thing that uh, comes with that idea that uh, Laodicea is so rich, they were so rich that they could rebuild the city by themselves without the help of the Roman government after the a destruction uh, of the whole city through uh, the earthquake in AD 60. So those, the city was destroyed like Sardis and Pergamum. You know, 12 Asia Minor cities were destroyed you know, by the earthquake and they could rebuild themselves, the city, by themselves without you know, even rejecting the you know, proper um, help from the Roman government. And even though they were wealthy and prosperous, there was one thing they didn't have. They didn't have good water. They didn't have water, drinkable water in their community. 
The closest thing they had was a town called Heriopolis that had hot springs. And so when that, if that water were brought over, it was just going to be, guess what? Lukewarm. You saw that word in the passage, I'm sure. So actually some of the best ruins associated with Laodicea are the aqueduct system that pumped in water from great distances because they lack good water. And you'll see in Jesus' message as he starts talking about being hot, cold, lukewarm, he's actually drawing a comparison with the water situation they had. They had the nearby town of Heriopolis with its hot springs, but that was not drinkable water. They, They had to pump in water from a great distance that was not cold and refreshing by the time it arrived there. It would have been in the lukewarm category. There was another town not too far away that did have nice cold water, but they couldn't, they themselves did not have... Uh, the access to cold, refreshing water. So Jesus is using this metaphor of water in his message, just as he's using the metaphor of their richness yet poverty in his message as well. Yeah, really good thoughts, guys. Um, Just one other thing to add. It seems as if uh, two of their most uh, popular products would be, number one, I read about there being black garments that they'd made, made of black wool. So think about that. Think, embed that in your mind in a moment, those black garments compared to what Jesus offers. And then uh, second would be eye salve, apparently was in the nearby uh, area, was a big time thing that they produced. And so uh, those will both be interesting things. Anybody else add anything historically? I just have one more thing. As far as um, biblical background, uh, Ephesus would have probably the most things to be said throughout the New Testament, but secondly, shockingly, probably is Laodicea, because Laodicea is mentioned multiple times in the letter to uh, Colossae from Paul. Uh, In in Colossians 4, uh, Paul talks about the church in Colossae receiving the letter he wrote to Laodicea and making sure that they passed on the letter he wrote to them to the church in Laodicea. And so there's a little bit of biblical background there. It's very interesting. Real good thought. All right, so now with that in mind, uh, let's now dive to the text. And we look at Jesus' self-introduction in verse 14. Uh, Seems like maybe you could say we have three introduction names of Jesus here, things that he calls himself. Um, Which of these stands out to you um, for one reason or another? Um, To me... To me, the, well, the second one, the faithful and true witness in ESV, English Standard Version. But the, the faithful, the word the faithful also means trustworthy. I can trust the witness because he knows everything about what he's talking about. You know, it is not easy to judge if a church is lukewarm cold or hot. It's not an easy thing to judge that. But he knows the heart of the church, and he cannot be wrong in his judgment. And he judged that the church was lukewarm. So, and I think this uh, phrase here, uh, the faithful and true witness, uh, may mean that his judgment is not wrong. I mean, he can judge rightly about anything for the church. I'm intrigued by the beginning of God's creation title that appears here. Uh, because in most modern translations that, that 
this audience uses, you're going to see it termed that way. But there are some other translations that will use the word ruler of God's creation or even originator of God's creation. Um, or at least they will translate the same term in other passages with, with that terminology. And I think one of the reasons that other translations do that is to combat the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus was a created being. Because if you read it out of context, or, or out of context of the whole of Scripture, I should say, it sounds like Jesus is the first thing God created. But that's not what this is communicating to us. The, uh, the passage here is communicating the same thing that Colossians chapter 1 verses uh, 15 through 18 is communicating, that Jesus uh, there in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The message here of the beginning of God's creation is speaking to his authority, to his rule, to his reign. When you take these, uh, state, these uh, identifications that are mentioned here and you go find where they appear back in chapter 1, there, there's a lot of, of connection between them and messages about Christ's rule. So, for instance, you go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Uh, Jesus is Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. You'll go down to verse uh, 13, I think it is. I have lost my positioning. But in chapter 1, there is an emphasis on Jesus being the one who rules and reigns and has authority. And for me, the beginning of God's creation, the idea that he is the ruler of God's creation, the originator of God's creation, and those translations are appropriate based on the Greek terminology, the idea that's being conveyed here as he speaks to Laodicea is, you may think you're in charge, but I'm in charge. You, you may, be, may be self-sufficient and prosperous and, and think that, that you're rich and, and you're powerful and, and so on, but really it's me. And, and so there is a message here that uh, through these identifications that really speaks to that congregation. Well, I, I, I love the first one, so uh, that just works out real well. I love the amen um, because this is the only time in Scripture, in all the Bible, that amen is used as a proper name. Uh, the only time in all of Scripture that amen or amen is used as a proper name. And I think there's something very special to be said about that. Uh, if you know anything about um, the word amen or, or amen, uh, it's the same in Hebrew, it's the same in Greek, and it's really the same in English. It's pronounced basically the same way. Uh, in Hebrew, it's Amen. In Greek, it's Amen. And then in English, we say Amen or Amen. And so it's, it's amazing to me to look whether you, and you had a very big uh, mix of both Jewish people and uh, Gentile Christians here in Laodicea. And so he says, I am the Amen, this word that was the same for the Hebrews as it was for the Greeks as it is even for us today. So this idea of Jesus being the Amen has this idea of Him being. What, well, what does the word Amen mean? What, what does the word Amen mean? It means true, truthfulness, or that's right. Somebody says Amen, what they're saying is that's true. That's right. Come on, Clinton. I heard you. 
When we say amen, then we're saying that's right. That, that's truthful. And so when Jesus says, I am the amen, I, he says, these things says the amen. He, he is saying, I am the truth. I am what is right, regardless of where you come from, what background you have. I am the truth. I am what's right. And so I think it's very powerful that he, he uses this word that has never been used as a proper name to describe himself, and it's something that only Jesus can do. Uh, it, there's a reason that that word has never been used for a proper name. It's because it, no one else can do it. I think it's so special, this idea that truth does not change. And Jesus is that embodiment of truth. Yeah, that's, that's the one I want to talk about, too. Because uh, the writer of Revelation, who's passing it on to us, who's received this prophecy, is John. And in John's gospel account, 25 times we find something only in his account that we don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it is Jesus, when he begins an important saying, saying, truly, truly, the double truly, which is really, you look at the Hebrew or the Greek, whatever you want to that, it's, he's saying, amen, amen, before he starts talking. Um, and that's just weird because you're right. Normally we say amen after somebody says something, like if the Lord pronounces a blessing or a curse or, or a prophet of the Lord speaks, we then say amen in agreement, in support of that. And Jesus is not only saying what he's saying, he's amening his own stuff. He, in a way, I mean, it's like, uh, I, I think this is a good way to say it. Like uh, uh, we, ha we had some brothers and sisters that had this saying back home, and you guys may have heard it before, that Jesus said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And Jesus is like, that is, that is so wrong. The amen says, Jesus says it, and that settles it. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It doesn't matter if you testify amen or not. He's like, I say it, and that's the way it is. And part of that is what we then see. The scary words in verses 15 and 16. Hot, cold, lukewarm. I'm going to go to the experts here. I need, I, so let's try to clearly kind of understand what does it mean to be hot? What does it mean to be cold? And of course, now, what does it mean to be lukewarm? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I think there's, there's, there's two ways to look at it. I think there's two views you can have. I think either Jesus is saying, I wish you were hot or cold, meaning I wish you were on fire for the cause of the gospel or not a Christian at all. That's one view, and I think that's the most popular view, and probably what we think of when we probably come to this text, we probably think Jesus is saying, I wish I would rather you be all in or just not in at all, just completely not a Christian. Uh, but I think there's a growing belief, and maybe, maybe a more accurate belief, of Jesus isn't saying that cold water has no use. He's definitely not saying hot water has no use. I think maybe, I, I, I'm not saying the first view is wrong. I think there is something to be said, and there are other passages throughout the New Testament that would support that thought, that Jesus wants us to be all in or not at all. And so I'm not saying that that view is wrong, but here's another view. As Kyle was talking about the water supply, in Colossae they had the cool springs, they had the water uh, which, was a, which was 10 miles uh, away from Laodicea. 
they had the cold water, and then Hierapolis had the hot water. The hot water was medicinal. It, it was good for, for bathing. It was good for so many different uh, healing properties. But then you got the cold water that is also good for something. And so I don't think Jesus is saying cold water is useless. I think cold water is very useful. Uh, I think cold water is ve- has a very good purpose uh, for drinking and for sustenance and for uh, Whatever cold water does for you. I, you know, by the way, some of y'all like lukewarm water these days. Somebody says, I prefer lukewarm water. Here's biblical proof to say you're crazy. Okay? <laughs> Jesus says, lukewarm water deserves to be vomited out, right? But no, seriously, I don't think Jesus is saying cold water is useless. I think he, I, I believe Jesus is saying, whether you are cold water or hot water just have some use have a use be doing something useful for the kingdom of god when you aren't doing anything useful you are useless and that was the church in laodicea they were useless this idea of cold water by the way this this word cold cup uh cold cold sorry if you go back to the Gospels, Jesus is the same word he uses for giving a cup of cold water in my name. So think of this idea of, of cold water also having a use and a purpose. Jesus isn't saying cold water is useless, I don't think. I think he's saying, find where you can have value. Find where you as a congregation can add something to the kingdom. Find where you as a person, an individual, can find meaning in the kingdom. Either way, though, whichever view you take, I think Jesus ultimately is saying the Laodiceans weren't. They, they weren't what he wanted. They were neither cold nor hot. And so in the end, they were useless. Um, it may be Jesus wasn't saying they weren't Christians at all. It could just be that he was begging them to find a meaning and a purpose and an intention and a sense of responsibility to do something. Just do something for the cause of Christ. And I, I really like the, the point that Ben's making here about how hot and cold both have purposes and therefore they're preferable to lukewarm. Uh, just to help with the other interpretation, why would Jesus think that cold water is better than lukewarm water? Our vantage point is if hot water is all in and cold water is all out, then lukewarm's got to be better than cold because you're at least somewhat in. But think about it this way. Jesus has always had a preference for commitment. Lukewarm water in that um, metaphor would be noncommittal. It would be straddling the fence. You go back to the book uh, of of Exodus, you go back to the, the... events at Mount Sinai and you have this group who goes up to Aaron and says we need a new God they build a build an all he builds an idol they worship that idol the next day or the next day Moses comes down draws a line in the sand and says whoever's on the Lord's side join me one tribe out of 12 joins him only the Levites they're the only ones that cross over he then tells them to get a sword and go kill their neighbors do you know how many people died that day See, our assumption is that all the people that participated in the worship of the golden calf died. I think it's only 3,000 died out of more than a million. So a very small portion died leads me to believe that a very small portion worshiped that golden calf. 
But if you only have one tribe siding with the Lord, and you have only a minority of 3,000 siding with the golden calf, then what's happening with the rest of the people? They're riding the fence. They're not making a commitment either way. They are lukewarm. I do think that if you were to take this comparison and say hot is all in, cold is all out, the reason Jesus would prefer cold is because he prefers a commitment one way or the other. He doesn't like straddling the fence. And think about it this way. What does more damage for the cause of Christ? Someone who doesn't claim to be a Christian or someone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't live up to it? Which one does more damage? The lukewarm individual who claims to be a follower but doesn't act like it? Or the cold individual who is not committed to the Lord whatsoever in any way, shape, or form? So I think you could make that comparison, though I tend to really like uh, the, the, the one that uh, Ben expounded upon personally. I think I'm coming from Korean culture. We like hot food. You know, we boil food and you know, even we have a stove on the table and continue, continuously boiling it and we eat it. So we don't like cold food. Uh, you know, uh, some foods should be cold. So I was thinking from my you know, background very naturally that, yeah, cold food, oh, I don't like it. You know, cold pizza, I don't like it. You know, it's like that. So I just assumed that, you know, uh, coldness is here is something wrong. It doesn't do, I mean, it is useless in my idea. And hot, we have to be hot. I mean, church has to be hot. It has to be boiling, boiling and boiling. So it has to be full. It has to be active, proactive. In, in, in the work of God. But lukewarmness is a little bit different. How can we get a lukewarm water, Brother Bob? Just let it in the room temperature. Then it, it, becomes, room temp, uh, it becomes room temperature. It is lukewarm. And even if it was cold, it would be lukewarm. Even if it was hot, it would be lukewarm. Very soon. If it doesn't do anything. It becomes lukewarm. We have to do something to make the lukewarm water, you know, hot or cold. We have to put some energy in it. We have to put uh, the water in the refrigerator to get a cold water, and we have to boil the water to get hot water. But if we don't do anything to the water, it becomes lukewarm. So lukewarm means they do nothing. They are just sitting there without doing anything, without getting any input from outside. And where? I mean, outside mean, may mean, if we, if, if we are talking about the church, outside may mean not from the world, but from God. We are not getting anything from God so that we can be cold or hot. But we are just standing here. Oh, we are great. I like here as I am. And I am becoming lukewarm. So we've, uh, 
we've kind of talked about these labels, but as we dig into 17 and 18 maybe, and you may go elsewhere, I mean, what would we say? What's, what's the problem here? What is the issue with this church? What do y'all think? I think it boils down to self-sufficiency. They, they think they are, because they are, they've been prosperous, uh, because they, they uh, are, are wealthy, because they've got everything going for them, they, 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 don't, need, they don't need anything. They, they don't need Christ. And, and we witness that, that in the world around us. And uh, when people are prosperous, when there is financial wealth, it's a lot harder to, um, to, get, to, to get people to see their need for the Lord. Um, and I think what happens here is this congregation... The book of Revelation is going to circulate through all seven churches um, where these letters aren't separated out. So when Laodicea gets this, before they read the letter to their church, they're reading the other six letters. And I imagine that as they're reading it, they're, they're seeing, oh, this church criticized, that church criticized, this church praised, that church criticized, and they're thinking, oh, when it comes to us, there's, he's not going to have anything for us. And then he he has nothing good to say. There's no positive feedback whatsoever in this letter, and I think that shocked them. And I think, I think uh, they're going to be like, why does he think we have a problem? What problem could we possibly have? Some of these churches have blatant immorality going on. Some of these churches have obvious false teaching. Why is he going to get on to us? We don't have false teaching. We don't have immorality. We don't have the problems of these churches. What's our problem? And if the problem is they can't, they can't see, they're blind because they are self-sufficient. They are so wrapped up in themselves. And if you look at verse 17, and Jesus' description of them, he, as we've already pointed out, says, you say, not you are, but you say, you possess the attitude of, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And what I believe Jesus is pointing out is that they have fallen into this category of self-sufficiency that causes them to be blind to their actual needs. Yeah, you know, Second Peter chapter 1 uh, talks about the Christian graces and adding to your faith vir uh, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, godliness, godliness, uh, no, godliness to brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness to love, right? Then he says, for if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be unfruitful or barren in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even unto blindness. And so I think when you look at the church in Laodicea, they lacked those things to the point they were blind. They might have had the prettiest building in all the cities, if they had a building. They were rich enough to have this, this great look and to be dressed nice and to look the part and to pay whatever it took to look good. But they were, as I said earlier, completely destitute spiritually to the point of blindness. I think that's the point, blind. And it, it, it kind of, I was thinking about this. It reminds me of uh, the old Febreze commercials. You remember the Febreze commercials, things that you've gone nose blind to? And, and they, showed, they showed all these people coming into people's homes, and there's, they've, they've got five dogs or or six cats, and they think their house is completely clean and smells nice, and see, they're used to it. They're used to the stench, so they don't smell it anymore. But when someone visits and comes inside the house, 
smacks him in the face, this stench that hits him like a physical wall. I remember one time I walked into someone's house. They had like 10 cats. I, I couldn't take more than one step into the door. And if you have 10 cats, I'll come to your house. I'm just, I'm saying this person just, it, 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 it was, it, I just couldn't be there. <laughs> Is that I, why you don't come back to our house anymore? I, I, I just, I just couldn't do it. And I don't know if you've been there before, but you, you, you become nose blind, and that's the Febreze commercial, right? And so buy Febreze, and it'll fix your problems. But when you think about this, going back to the text, Laodicea was completely blind to just how, how messed up they had gotten, how off course they had gotten. And so I think that's the problem going on with Laodicea. Uh. Recently, I heard uh, from a minister somewhere uh, in, in, in the you know, Church of Christ. He said that uh, some churches are buying VBS materials from the Gospel Advocates. When Gospel Advocates make the set uh, very well, and they sell the set to the churches. What if we have a Bible, uh, BBS uh, with the theme of, you know, Goliath and David. And we can buy the gray set from Gospel Advocate. And we make the set here and install the set here. And kids enjoy and t teachers teach the story. And everything is going good, going well. It seems. What about the members? What did they do? What did they participate in making the set? The set is great, but what did they do? What did the members do for the set? Even though the set is clumsy and you know the color is not harmonious and even the you know structure is not very well made, but what about? You know, all members are participated in making to make the set. And they are so proud of it. I think that is hot. That is the hotness that we have to have. And the Laodicea people, the church said that, said, I need nothing. And they said, I need nothing. You know, I can buy it. I have money. Okay. We have a lot of fund. And we can buy everything. Oh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to come uh, tomorrow to, to help us make that set for the BBS. Yeah, the gospel advocate will make it and deliver it to us. And we have a lot of fun. That's not hot. It's just a lukewarm. Because, because I think the hardness can come from outside. I say it again that the outside means from God. Only God can make us cold or hot as he wishes. So we need God. We should not forget that we need God. Even if we are rich, monthly-wise, I mean, I mean, 
monetary-wise, we should know that we need God. We need grace of God. Without grace of God, we cannot be hot. We cannot be cold. We'll be just lukewarm. And that's, that's what the Laodicea church failed to notice. And you know what? The first verse of the Sermon on the Mount, what is it? What is it? Uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We have to be poor in spirit before God, and we acknowledge, we have to acknowledge that we need you, God, our Father, our Savior. Without your grace, we cannot be hot, we cannot be cold. But if we say, oh, we did nothing. We are sufficient. We have sufficiency. We are lukewarm. I went with my family to uh, Disney World a few years ago. Happiest place on earth. Good stuff. Good times. And uh, had a great time. My dad had a great day playing with uh, my kids and other family members. Super time. Here, there, everywhere. On his feet. All over the place. Best day ever. Uh, sits down in the living room, takes his shoe off, and his sock and his foot are completely covered in blood. Uh, my dad is a diabetic and he has neuropathy in his feet, and he didn't know that somewhere along the way he had stepped on some gigantic sharp screw and it had gone through his shoe. I'm sorry to do this to you before dinner time, and pierced through his foot. He thought, I'm in the happiest place, this has been a great day, not realizing he was literally bleeding out. And that's this church here. They think all's great, they're at Disney World, not realizing how bad off they are. Jesus' comment that I want to, I'll spew you out of my mouth, just sounds so, uh, it, sound, it sounds hateful, if I can be honest, it sounds really mean. But I'm interested in your thoughts it doesn't seem as if, as we read the whole letter here to this church, that Jesus hates these folks. What stands out to you as now we kind of go to his, uh, his counsel, his words to them that say, you know, I know that I said that at the beginning, but I love you. I want the best for you. I care for you. What stands out to you guys? Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Mm -hmm. And what's he doing to this church but, but trying to reprove and discipline them? He's saying, I love you, but here's what's got to happen. And we, as, we who have been parents, we understand this, that you, you, have, you have to discipline your kids. You have to, you have to uh, um, get on to them from time to time to correct them, to point them in the right direction. I mean, Scripture speaks about that, uh, that responsibility quite a bit in Proverbs especially. But what Jesus does here is he lets them know he still loves them by saying, I only do this because I, I only discipline, I only reprove because I love you. And the fact that he's offering reprove, reproval, is that the correct terminology? Reproof. I don't know. Reproof. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Uh, because he's doing that to them, he's saying, this is evidence that I love you. I thought the same thing, verse 19, as many as I love, and I don't think that's limited to Laodicea. I think what he's trying to say is, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't say a word. Hmm. 
but because I love you, I'm going to take the time to tell you what you need to hear. It, again, to the, to the smelly house, a good friend would be like, dude, you need to do something about this. <laughs> you know? And I, I think Jesus is saying, you have got to clean this up. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He has rebuked and chastened almost every congregation in these seven letters. Because he loves every congregation in these seven letters. And because he loves, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll just hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat dinner with you. Jesus, he, he loves them. He, it, it perfectly shows the character of God and Jesus and the Godhead of, of being God of love and, and grace, but also being God of wrath and a God of justice, a God of holiness, because he, that, what he says about knocking and what he says about love doesn't detract from the fact that he said, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. There's the wrath, there's the justice, there's the holiness. I will not let you be with me. But then he says, in pleading, in love, I'm just knocking, I'm begging, I'm begging, I'm begging you to get your act right, please. It's pleading. I think Jesus is, is pleading when he says this. I think the, you know, I agree with um, Ben and Kyle about his love, you know, because he loved, uh, he reproved the church. But when more, further, if I think, he came to the church, you know. He chose the church to talk and to tell them to do something to be saved from the problem. Even if the church was lukewarm and he wanted to spit it out, out of his mouth, but he came to the church and sent a letter and he is talking to them that you have another chance to make it right. I think that is great love. Even if we short of God's will, God gives us the second chance. And that is from his love, his grace. I think that is great love. Let me, let me add a few rapid fires real quick to you. If you think about Romans 1, really bad sinners and God's judgment of them think if you remember you hear something like God gave them up. He basically leaves them alone. You can think of it like that. Withdraws his presence. Yeah, that's when things have reached the end of the line. And this idea of reproof and discipline says that I'm not done with you yet. There's still, there's still hope here. He says I want to come in. I want to eat with you and you with me. That's mutual fellowship. Me with you, you with me. Same level. Communion. And then, you know, if you turn your act around, I'm going to let you stay in a duplex on the edge of heaven. Next to the thief on the cross. He's on the other side of the... No, no, no. That's not what he says at all. Uh, some commentators and scholars believe 21 is the grandest promise made to any church. In verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. 
That's pretty cool stuff. Uh, and so we now kind of come to the end. Our time is up, but I really wanted to give uh, these guys an opportunity um, to share either something about this letter, the big point that stands out to you, applying it to Buford, applying it to ourselves, or maybe as you think about this whole series, these seven lessons, uh, just one overarching lesson for us to think about as we close. I'll, I'll give one. I'll give one for each. For one for Buford, and then one for the whole of the seven letters. And the one for Buford is what we were talking about earlier. Just ask yourself. Number one, what use does the Buford Church of Christ have for furthering the kingdom? I believe that we make good use of the funds and the finances that we have. Now let's talk about individually. What use do you individually have to advancing the cause of the kingdom of Christ? We have a lot of affluent people here. We have a lot of affluent people that use their money and their finances and they give liberally, and they give sacrificially. Can you say that about yourself? So the question being, what use does the Buford Church of Christ have? What use do I have as an individual? Because if I am neither cold nor hot, I'm going to be spewed out. I'm going to be vomited out, and I won't be able to dine with the Lord. So that's my thought with the Buford Church of Christ with Laodicea. When it comes to the whole of the seven letters, I, I would just say what Jesus said at the end of every single one. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. I think every one of these we, we need to look at, we need to read, we need to study, we need to think about what it means to us today, what, how we can be like this congregation, good and bad, and then we need to hear it. We may or may not have some problems that the problems that the churches have, uh, but it is not, it will not hurt us if we are so humble to just think that like we might have that problem and we have to be uh, attending, uh, paying attention to Jesus' warnings. I think that will not hurt us. Rather, that will help us to grow. I think uh, everything that was written in the you know, letters to the seven churches should be diligently studied and try to find the messages to us too and apply it to us. And we will grow. That's the, that's the thing we have to do, I think. I'll conclude with this. The, uh, the reference to Jesus standing at the door and knocking um, in verse 20 tells me two things. One, it tells me that Jesus is always in pursuit. This, this description here, it, he didn't leave them behind. He didn't give up on them. He's still chasing after them. 
he still wants them to, to right the ship, to come back. And that might be you tonight with him knocking, waiting, waiting on you to return to him. But it also tells me something else. In order for Jesus to be knocking, that means he's on the outside looking in. He's knocking essentially on the door of his own church. Why? Because sometimes the church kicks him out. And when I say the church, I can mean that collectively or individually. So ask yourself tonight, Laodicea was self-sufficient. They kicked Jesus out. In your life, have you kicked Jesus out? Is he on the outside looking in, knocking, trying to get back in? Or is he in his proper place? Brothers and sisters, it's been an honor and a blessing to study with you. Let's close with prayer. Our Lord and our God, we praise Father, Son, and Spirit. We are so thankful for this Word which lives forever, which is at each and every one of our fingertips. May we not take that for granted. We pray, Father, 